Good morning, PBC. If you will make your way to a seat. It's good to see you all. I'm Jamie. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the pew in front of you. Grab one of the black ones. You'll find Luke 14 on page 874. Chapter numbers are the big numbers, the verse numbers are the little numbers. We'll be reading from verse 25 down to verse 35, the end of the chapter. Here at PBC, we believe and we teach that God created man in His own image. Thanks, sweetheart. But in Adam's sin, the human race fell and inherited a sinful nature, and they became alienated from God. And God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who lived a sinless life and died the death the sinners desi- deserved to die as a substitute, that God raised him on the third day, and that those who trust in Jesus Christ are made new, and they're set free from the bondage to their sin. That God enables them progressively to die to all of the worldly and sinful pleasures and to live righteously before God. And the sanctification is what we call this process, and it is throughout the whole person, and yet it is incomplete in this life. It remains uh, some of the elements, the remnants of our corruption extends to every part of us, and this creates a continual and irreconcilable war within us, the flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Every believer lives in anticipation of God's finalization of the sanctification process, what we call the glorification of the body which will take place at the believer's death or when Christ comes for His own. And we're going to read a little bit of this in the passage before us. So Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. I'll read the passage through, pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then uh, we will uh, work our way through this passage a little bit at a time. It should be around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you? Desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Let's pray. Uh, Lord and Father, we come to you and we ask uh, that you would be merciful and gracious to us this morning, your people, and that we would have ears that hear, and that we would seek um, to understand this word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, be with us, give us attention, give us the ability to hear, to listen, to understand. Prepare our hearts to receive your word this morning. The seed of your word might find good soil in our hearts, that it would take root downward and that it would bear fruit upward for the glory of Christ in all things. And Pickle Baptist said, amen. No one puts a swimming pool on a battleship. Well, almost no one does. There was this one guy, Captain J. Edward Snyder, who installed two swimming pools on the battleship New Jersey during the Vietnam War. It was his attempt to boost his crew's morale. And there are pictures of Captain Snyder swimming in a swimming pool on the battleship, but there's no evidence that anyone else This is, I suppose, because everyone knows that swimming pools don't go on battleships. In the 1980s and 1990s, it became uh, somewhat fashionable in the West to build churches around the felt needs of the people. Taking cues from the world of marketing, Churches developed programs which appealed to the sensibilities and to the appetites of the people in their communities. The idea was you do whatever you can, short of sin, to get people in the doors, and then you tell them about Jesus. And it worked. Lots of people came to churches. Some churches became very, very large. And I have to say, I appreciate the sentiment. I want to see churches bursting at the seams with people praising the name of Christ. But the trouble with the marketing approach to church is that it turns the gospel of Jesus Christ into a product. And it turns the disciples of Jesus Christ into consumers of that product. By necessity, it forces the preacher to cater to the appetite of the consumer and to conceal or sometimes even remove elements of God and of God's truth which the consumer finds unappealing. And the product, the gospel, then becomes a therapy, a series of life hacks. The sermons are tips for living life to the fullest and finding yourself and realizing your dreams. And there's almost no mention or acknowledgement of sin and no call to repentance. The cost of discipleship is low. There's no cross-bearing. There's no self-denial. There's no enduring through suffering. There's no preparation for persecution. These things, if present at all, are hidden in the fine print. We're converting battleships into cruise liners and then sending them into war. Well, it's apparent from this passage here that this was not the missional method of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, our Lord was up front with the cost of discipleship. Salvation in Jesus Christ is free. 
But following Jesus Christ costs everything. Here's the point this morning, the big idea. Because of who Jesus is, because of what He has done, Jesus Christ deserves all our life for all our life. Because of who He is, because of what He has done, Jesus Christ deserves all our life for all our life. So give Him nothing less. So three main points I would like to draw out of the text this morning. Number one, Jesus deserves our highest allegiance. Jesus deserves our highest allegiance. Number two, that Jesus deserves our greatest sacrifice. That Jesus deserves our greatest sacrifice. And then finally, Jesus deserves our deepest devotion. Jesus deserves our deepest devotion. So let's consider the first point. Jesus deserves our highest allegiance. And we see this, I trust, in verses 25 and 26. So Direct your attention once more to 25 and 26. Luke tells us, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. No country, no cause, no company, and no man can demand so high an allegiance from anyone unless that man is God, which he is. In which case, it is only right for Jesus to demand so high an allegiance. So you see, there is no fine print for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's He's left the dinner that has occupied most of Luke chapter 14, and he resumes his journey that he's been making on his way to Jerusalem, where, as you know, he will be betrayed and arrested, killed. Great crowds are accompanying him on his way to Jerusalem. And with great crowds accompanying him, any other man would have placated to the crowds, but not Jesus. Jesus turns to the crowd, verse 26, and he says one of the most shocking things that you'll ever read in the whole of Scripture. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, his own life, Cannot be my disciple. So we have to, like, hold up, hate? I'm mean, surely that's a mistranslation. I, check the Greek. I, it can't mean hate. I mean, I thought this Jesus was all about love. What happened to love your neighbor as yourself? Hate your father and mother? I mean, I need to check my notes here, but I'm pretty sure the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother, not hate them. So what do we do with this? Jesus is saying that unless we hate everyone in our family, even our own lives, we cannot be his disciple. So if, if you read this and you are struggling with this, 
good. <laughs> You're meant to. It's at its desired effect. But let's be good Bible students. When you come across a hard passage like this one, you sit with it. You meditate upon it. You pray about it. You beat your head against it. You wrestle it like Jacob with the angel. But what you don't do is dismiss it. Or explain it away. Or try and find ways that it can't mean what it clearly does mean. We don't change the Bible. We change according to the Bible. So what does Jesus mean? We cannot be his disciples unless we hate our family and ourselves. And how do we reconcile this with his commandment to love? Jesus is saying that to be his disciple, our allegiance to him must so far exceed all other allegiances in our life that were the two compared, they would be close to love and hate. They would be so far apart from one another, as far apart as love is from hate. Because of who he is, because of what he has done, he alone deserves our highest allegiance. Jesus Christ is first over all. Nothing and no one else compares. So given the choice between anything and Jesus, it is Jesus every time. No hesitation, no delay. That love for and devotion to family, devotion to one's own self-well-being falls so far beneath the love and devotion that we have for Jesus Christ that were they compared, it would be like love and hate. He is first. By the highest margin. Now note our Lord's rhetorical device in verse 26. That word and is in the original. And it hits hard. Did you notice it? Father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. So pile of them, all of them up. Nothing else compares. He is first. For many people, I'm afraid that becoming a Christian is a bit like adding a room onto your house. It's your Jesus room, if you like. He's part of their life, but that's just it. He's a part of their life. You go to that room once in a while, you're, you think about Jesus once in a while. When things get tough, you're sure, you're sure glad that he's in your life. He's a good thing to have around. Huge admirer of Jesus Christ. Well, if that's describing you, friend, you need to know you're not a Christian. If Jesus Christ is not the central and complete controlling influence in your life. You don't have him. If your life does not funnel to Jesus Christ or flow out from Jesus Christ, then you don't know Jesus Christ. 
Because to be a Christian means that everything centers around Jesus Christ. Everything. To know Jesus Christ is to have Him as supreme. Your highest allegiance. Your deepest satisfaction. Your greatest joy. And this only makes sense because of who He is and who we are. After all, we are creatures made from the dust. Image bearers of God, to be sure. Beautiful snowflakes, sure. And snowflakes who have ruined their beauty by rebelling against their Creator. Regardless of what you may hear other places, we are not well-intentioned people who sometimes do regrettable things. The Bible says that the human heart is deceitful above all things, that it is desperately wicked. We have all committed cosmic treason against the King of heaven. We've sought to lead a coup against the Lord and His Christ. And our sin deserves the full extent of God's justice, God's wrath. But in an act of astonishing mercy and grace, God sent His own Son who put on flesh and came to us. He died in our place and took the place we deserve to be under the wrath of God. And God raised Him on the third day for our justification. And then God gave us His Spirit and new life. The very one against whom we rebelled suffered the penalty of that rebellion. And Then He made us His own. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, and gifted us eternal life and joy everlasting. This is what this man, Jesus, did for hell-deserving sinners. And thus, it is only fitting that he deserves our highest allegiance. If anyone else seeks that allegiance, they're wrong. Is anyone else worthy of it? Has anyone else done so much? Well, I hope you see why Jesus is comfortable saying a thing like he said in verse 26. You can see why he demands so much. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus Christ. Pray to God for mercy. Take that Bible home with you. Finish reading the Gospel of Luke. And come back next Sunday. Tell someone you'd like to become a Christian. And we'll begin meeting with you and telling you more about how to follow Jesus Christ. Salvation in Jesus Christ is free. And following him costs everything. Have you counted the cost? Well, this is the question Jesus asks next. Let's pick up reading verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation that's not able to finish, all will see it and begin to mock him, saying, well, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war does not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with his 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? But if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you 
who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 27 again. If anyone doesn't take up their own cross and come after him, can't be his disciple. Now, I admit, I used to think that some Christians were called to carry a heavier cross than other Christians. It seemed to me that someone in, uh, say, a Muslim-majority culture who is faced with persecution or faced with the rejection of their family or, say, someone who is same-sex attracted and has to commit to a life of celibacy to be faithful to God. I used to think that those people had to carry a heavier cross than I did growing up in a Christian home. I thought that my cross was lighter than theirs, that I had to give up less in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But you see, I misunderstood what it meant to follow Christ. You see, I had given up less to follow Jesus, but that is because I was giving up less to follow Jesus. It's not that their crosses were heavier than mine. It's that I was trying to make my cross lighter than it should have been. You see, if we think that cross-bearing is less for some than it is for others, we've not understood what it means to follow Christ. Following, Following Jesus Christ is a call to die, and that call goes out to everyone. I think it's probably going to do us good to remind ourselves that a cross is not an instrument of inconvenience or irritation. That a cross is an instrument of slow torture. It is a death sentence. And Jesus means to say that following him will feel like dying. Dying to yourself. Self-denial. And so, Christian, if your following of Christ does not involve a sweeping self-denial, then check yourself, for it may not be Christ that you are following. Because following Christ costs everything. Our Lord uses two illustrations to drive home this point. The two illustrations make, have slightly different emphases. Both of them call us to count the cost. But both of them take a different angle on that call. In the first illustration, Jesus asks, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and figure out how much it's going to cost? Do you have enough material? Do you have enough money to finish the job? Can you see the project through to its end? As I said, following Jesus is for all of your life, and it's for all life. It's for a lifetime. There's a hotel in Pyongyang, North Korea, that stands more than 1,000 feet tall, 105 stories tall. 
There are several thousand rooms in this hotel and dozens of restaurants in this hotel, and it entertains zero guests. Construction began on this hotel in the late 80s, and they ran out of money. And so today, it is a multi-million dollar uninhabitable box. A thousand foot tall billboard to poor planning. Jesus is saying, count the cost. Are you willing to pay the price to carry the cross of self-denial and follow him? Is he worth it? Is he worth the relational expense that allegiance to him may cause to the nearest and dearest of your relationships? Yesterday in your Bible reading plan, you read Revelation chapter 19, where the heavens open and Jesus appears on a white horse. And in that passage, Jesus is called faithful and true. Faithful means follow through. Jesus is pictured as faithful. He said that he would come back, and he will come back. He said that he has overcome the world, and he has overcome the world. He is faithful. He has follow through on his promises to his people. And the Christian landscape is littered with men and women who started down the road, but when it came time to pay the price, they tapped it. They'll follow Christ so long as He doesn't contradict them. Oh, they'll submit to Scripture so long as they get to say what it means. Oh, they'll submit their finances to Him, but not their sexuality. They'll be in authority, but not under it. And you see the danger then of marketing the gospel to felt needs. What happens to a person's faith when those felt needs aren't being met? What happens when they don't get their way? If we've turned disciples into consumers, churches into cruise ships, then what is going to happen when our Lord sends us into battle against the flesh? Where we have to tell those same sensibilities, no. If we have been sold an uncomfortable Christ, what happens when that Christ calls us to suffer? So count the cost. Let me just pull back the curtain. You can't afford it. You can't afford to pay the price. But you can't afford not to. And that's the point Jesus makes in the next illustration. Verse 31 and 32. What king going out to encounter another king in war doesn't first sit down, figure out with with his 10,000, am I going to be able to go up against the guy with 20,000? And if not, then he has to send a delegation and beg for terms of peace. 
See, in the first illustration, Jesus said, are you prepared to pay the price to be my disciple? And in the second illustration, he asks, are you prepared to pay the price to not be my disciple? In the first, a man must decide whether he has enough to build. In the second, a decision is forced upon the king. An army of 20,000 is invading. Is he able with his 10,000 to meet him? And how is he going to make peace? You see what Jesus is saying. You can't afford to follow me, and you can't afford not to. Again, no one talks like this unless he is God. You can submit to Jesus Christ, or you can wrestle against him. What you can't do is ignore him. You are outgunned. You are outmanned. This fight is a fight you cannot win. You must make your peace with God. And so we come to the summary of this section of Scripture, verse 33. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus deserves our greatest expense. No fine print. This is the third time in this passage, third time that he makes his terms clear. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must put him first. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must die to yourself. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must renounce all that you have. And that word renounce means to say goodbye to, to leave behind all that you have. Again, it is a hard saying. So we do what we did with the other hard saying and we sit with it. We don't dismiss it. We don't try and make it mean something it doesn't mean. And we ask, is this what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus saying to follow him, we need to sell everything that we have and give it to the church? Why should we be so certain that the answer is no? It does say, any one of you. And, and that's exactly what the early church did. They didn't seem to have a whole lot of hesitation about it. So whether the Lord is calling us to sell everything or not, He is calling us to leverage everything we have for Him and for His glory. At the very least, Renouncing all that you have means that we turn away from our focus on those things and we turn towards Him. Taking focus off of our things and on to our Messiah. You see, our Lord is not interested in casual admirers. He wants white-hot worshipers. And and the truth be told, there are no half-hearted Christians. You are either all in or you're not in at all. Your Lord is not demanding a portion of your time, a portion of your money, a percentage of your heart. The only percentage that is worthy of Jesus Christ is 100%. After all, what did Isaac Watts teach us to sing? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life.
my all. Because of who he is. Because of what he has done, Jesus deserves our highest allegiance and our greatest sacrifice. And then finally, our deepest devotion. One more illustration. And this one, salt. Verse 34. Salt is good. I'm going to try and tell my wife that for years. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What makes salt good? It's saltiness. And once... It loses its saltiness. It loses its usefulness. Actually, it's a strange metaphor because salt can't technically lose its saltiness. It's a pure substance. It can only be salt. Saltiness is its essence. So Jesus is saying if salt loses its saltiness, it loses its essence, its purpose, its usefulness. It's good for nothing. It's not good for the soil. It's not good for the manure pile. It's just trash. Throw it away. Following Jesus Christ won't make your life easier, but it will give your life meaning. Following Jesus Christ gives your life meaning, gives it purpose. The purpose of your life is to bring glory to God by putting Jesus first in all things, by sacrificing all things for His sake, by offering Him your highest devotion. If that's your purpose and you're doing that, your salt. But if that's your purpose and you're not doing that, then you're like salt that's lost its saltiness. You've lost your purpose. Again, no one says this kind of thing unless you're God, which Jesus is. Because in essence, what Jesus is saying is he is what gives human life meaning and purpose. And that without him, and more to the point, actually without full devotion to him, life is not life. It's life without meaning. So you understand, Christian, you are alive today for one reason. One reason. That there is glory that your Lord intends to take for himself from your life. That is why you exist. There is glory that your God intends to receive when you say no to temptation. When you give a cup of cold water away in his name. When you humble yourself, when you submit to one another, when you push back against the worldly ideologies at work, when you share the gospel with a friend, there is glory that God intends to receive from your life when you delight yourself in the Lord, when you trust Him through suffering, when you consider others more significant than yourselves, when you remain faithful to your spouse, when you raise your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, when you forgive instead of retaliating, when you are kind and gentle when you exhibit self-control, when you encourage and build up others, when you receive a rebuke, when you turn up at a prayer meeting, you're being salt. Your God is fulfilling His purpose in your life. He's taking glory 
That's mine. She's mine. He's mine. That's why you're alive. Now, this passage is hard. But you need to know that this is not what Jesus is calling us to at the end of Luke 14. This is not radical Christianity. This is mere Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. But still, it's hard. What do we do with this? Because as, as I said, if, if we're honest with ourselves, it's too hard. The price is too high. I mean, after all, will anyone in this room claim to have put Jesus first in all things? To have carried the full weight of every cross? To have renounced all that we have and fulfilled God's purpose in our life? Well, I, I think if we're honest, we would all admit that we have muddied our lives by compromise. And we've taken the easy route. That we've taken out our proverbial knives and started to carve a little bit out of that heavy cross so that it weighs less. No one can claim to have walked out Luke 14, 25 to 35. No one. Well, there was this one guy. You see, that's just it. There is one who did. Jesus Christ put allegiance to his Father above allegiance to all others. That Jesus Christ carried the full weight of every cross. That Jesus Christ renounced all that he had to do his Father's will. He did it. And because he did it, because he set it up this way, dear Christian, when your Heavenly Father looks at you, he credits you with doing it. You get the credit. Jesus gave everything for his people, and in so doing, he gave everything to his people. So nothing you leave behind is ever a leaving of anything behind. Nothing you lose for his sake is a losing at all. To live is Christ. To die is gain. How did the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 3? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So going back to the question that I asked at the beginning, how do we reconcile Jesus' call to hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, even the own life, with the command to love one another? Well, these are not contradictions. Because putting Jesus first is the only way that we will be able to love father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, even our own life. Since everything that we need is ours in Jesus Christ, we don't have to go searching for anything from anyone else. You don't have to mine any other relationship 
for acceptance and approval. You already have acceptance and approval in Jesus Christ. And thereby you are free to serve and give and love and submit without fear of being used or taken advantage of or trampled on. You can give your heart to someone who might break it because you know the one who mends it. United to Christ, renouncing all for him and his sake means that we can then have a healthy relationship with money and possessions. We don't have to mine our money and possessions for our sense of security and status. We already have the ultimate security and status in Christ. And so we can give truly, generously, without worrying that we're going to run out. And we can truly own things without them owning You see, this works for everything. Only when a love of Christ surpasses all other loves will we be able to truly love. Because of who he is. Because of what he has done. He deserves your life for all your life. Give him nothing less. Father, please receive our thanks for giving us hard words like the ones we've considered this morning. And thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to understand your word. Forgive us for refusing to pay the price to follow Jesus. Who he is and what he has done demands that we rightly give all to him. And Lord, we confess that our lives are littered with unfinished projects, broken promises, divided loyalties. That we have mined relationships with father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, for the acceptance that we already have in Jesus. And when they fail us, we blame them. Please forgive us. We've mined money and possessions for status and security. And when they come short, we blame you. Please forgive us. Father, satisfy our hearts in Jesus Christ. Grant us faith to believe and to trust in his care and provision. Enable us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That he would, he would receive what he rightly deserves. All the praise and glory from our lives. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. Today's assurance of pardon comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, rest this week in these words. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool.